standing by. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode into the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time, you may press star 1 on your phone to ask a question. I would like to inform all parties that today's conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I would now like to turn the conference over to your host, the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Operator, and good morning and welcome to those uh, joining from the United States, Mexico, and around the world. Thanks for tuning in to the Wilson Center's 143rd Ground Truth Briefing. I'm told we have over 260 people on the line. Uh, we're getting record numbers of people dialing into our GTBs because they want to learn things, and especially they want to learn in depth about how COVID-19 affects uh, various regions of the world. As the spread of COVID-19 accelerates in the Americas, uh, that means the Americas, not just the U.S., we hope you and your loved ones are healthy and in close communication. Please follow health guidelines. Uh, as I pointed out in other Ground Truth briefings, including one um, that was way oversubscribed uh, by our Latin American program uh, and our Kennan Institute, the coronavirus particle is just 120 nanometers wide. That's small enough to fit nearly 600 across the width of a human hair. No wonder this is so contagious. Uh, and it has taken devastating physical, psychological, and economic toll in a matter of weeks and months. Uh, probably no one, at least in the U.S., has missed the fact that, the fact that uh, over 3 million people uh, applied for unemployment insurance last week. It's three or four times the all-time record. In these uncertain times, the Wilson Center is leveraging its regional expertise to help our audiences understand how every part of the world is responding. Uh, briefings like these are the reason we've been named three times uh, in a row as the number one think tank in the world uh, for regional studies. Today, we're talking about Mexico, specifically the impacts that coronavirus has had on public health, politics, and the economy, and how government and society are responding. Yesterday, our Mexico Institute published a timely new report by Andrew Rudman and Duncan Wood on the issue of public health cooperation between Mexico and the United States, entitled Pandemics and Beyond. How timely. If you haven't already, I encourage you to read the paper on the Mexico Institute's website and keep an eye out for more programming on the crisis and the U.S. and U.S.-Mexico relations that the Institute is planning for the next few weeks. The futures of the United States and Mexico are deeply intertwined. This is abundantly clear when we think about border management and the highly integrated North American economy. Uh, I certainly understood this growing up in Los Angeles, and often when I served uh, in Congress for nine terms, I would refer to Los Angeles as North Mexico. There was such a huge Mexican population there that enriched uh, my city. It's certainly true this this intertwining, uh, it's no less true when it comes to the economic and policy impacts of COVID-19, which is about to ramp up in Mexico just as it has in the U.S. in the past few weeks. To introduce our speakers and this important discussion on the impact of COVID-19 in Mexico, I'll, th I'll turn things over to Duncan Wood, our amazing British-Canadian-Mexican uh, who directs our Mexico Institute. Uh, over to you, Duncan. Thank you, Jane. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, I hope everybody's well and coping with the new and changing conditions. We're extremely fortunate uh, today to have three experts on the line to discuss different aspects of the situation in Mexico. Sadly, 
Uh, Roberto Tapia has just let us know that he will not be able to participate today, I assume because of the, uh, the changing conditions in Mexico. Um, but we are blessed to have uh, three other friends of the Mexico Institute with us. Two years ago, the Mexico Institute began to uh, do some work on public health policy in Mexico, and we turned to Eduardo Gonzalez-Pierre, former Undersecretary of Public Health in Mexico, to lead our efforts. I am deeply indebted to, uh, to Eduardo for directing our work in this area, and so I didn't hesitate to turn to him when we began to organize this telephone event. He will begin the discussion today. Thank you, Eduardo, for being on the line. Uh, secondly, we will turn to one of our board members, Luis de la Calle, who will discuss the economic impact of the crisis and the government response in Mexico. Luis is a former Undersecretary of the Economy, the Managing Director of De La Calle, Madraso and Mancera, a consulting firm in Mexico. He's a longtime NAFTA and USMCA warrior and has recently published a piece on the COVID-19 crisis on the Mexico Institute website. Thank you, Luis. Third, we're delighted to have with us Jorge Buendia, a Mexico Institute Global Fellow and Director of Buendia and Laredo, one of Mexico's leading public opinion polling and research firms. Jorge will talk about the impact on public opinion and politics. Thank you, Jorge. Without any further ado, I'm going to turn the, uh, the phone line over to, uh, to Eduardo Gonzalez-Pierre to talk about the, uh, the public health aspects of the COVID-19 crisis. Eduardo. Thank you, Duncan, and thank you, Jane, and good morning to everybody. So I'll take a few minutes to try to explain what is going on in Mexico with the uh, crisis, and especially from the uh, lens of the healthcare system. So uh, a few statistics from last night. Every, seven, every night at 7 p.m. we have our count of cases. Uh, okay. Last night, uh, 475 people were confirmed as positive, and unfortunately we have six deaths from uh, coronavirus. Um, I think uh, last Monday we went into phase two, which means uh, not, it's a lockdown, but it's not an enforced lockdown. Uh, it is up to local governments to decide whether they want to keep or not open uh, most of the businesses. And also last night there was an announcement that the federal government is closing as of today. So that was an unexpected uh let's say, uh, development of uh, phase two. Now, I think a very relevant question around this is uh, what type of scenarios or trajectories will the uh, Mexican case take? And I think there's two, two sides of this. Either it can behave like uh, the Asian countries, China, Korea, Singapore, Japan, which were relatively successful in containing the uh, transmission, or it can be more like Italy, Iran, Spain, where there has been nowadays more cases maybe than some of the um, Asian countries. And a lot of it depends on the success of the health systems in terms of uh, containing and especially flattening the curve. That means spreading more cases over time, not necessarily reducing the total number of cases, but being able for the, uh, to, let's say, allow for cases to be uh, treated by the healthcare system. Now, some interesting points around why Mexico can be a bit different from the European examples is uh, three things, maybe four. One of them is the demographic characteristics of Mexico. So keep in mind, Mexico is a younger population than um, Italy, Spain, uh, maybe not Iran, but uh, also the Asian countries. So that is, that is good in the sense that uh, less population, less percentage of the population can be considered at risk. Second, the population density is also lower. 
That means, just as a comparison, the population density in Mexico is six times lower than it is in Italy. So that helps in terms of uh, containing uh, transmission. And it is also a bit more rural. Uh, on the negative side, uh, comorbidities, that means people being sick of something else, especially uh, chronic diseases, increases the risk of the population. And in the case of Mexico, we have a lot of adults population with uh, other types of diseases, and the, that is uh, working against us. Now, going into the health system, I think this is very important. We have to keep in mind that the system, and this is not new, maybe for the past decades, couple decades, can be seen as a very under-resourced, understaffed, under-equipped healthcare system, especially if you compare it to the OECD countries. So just as an example, the allocation of spending to health in Mexico is 5.5% of GDP. That is public and private spending compared to an average of OECD countries of 8.8. And in the case of the U.S., which is the biggest spender, is 17%. If you look at dollar terms adjusted by parity, uh, spending in the OECD countries is around four, four times larger per capita, and the U.S. is nine times larger per capita. So you have to keep in mind that Mexico is facing this crisis with a very uh, weak, understaffed, under-equipped healthcare system. Now, this means that flattening the curve will help, but the system will enter into a, an overload much faster than it has happened in uh, other OECD and Asian countries. That means uh, ICD, uh, hospital beds will get uh, um, used up faster. Let me, let me give you an example of the number of beds that we have. The, when you look at the uh, number of beds in a country, you usually look at them per thousand population. So in the case of uh, OECD countries, the average is about uh, five beds per thousand. If you look at uh, countries like Japan and Korea, they have more than 12 beds per thousand population. Italy, Spain have over three beds. Mexico has only 1.4 beds per thousand population. And also, if you look at staffing, uh, doctors per thousand or nurses per thousand, especially nurses, uh, the number of nurses per thousand population in Mexico is about four times less than you would find in the U.S. or three times less than you would find in OECD countries. So, uh, Message number one is uh, the health system will be overloaded much faster than other countries have experienced, and this is going to increase the uh, probably the number of deaths or the mortality rate of the confirmed cases. Now, second message I want to uh, address before uh, going uh, finalizing is that not only do we have a structural concern, but we also have had some recent developments, I'm talking the past two to three years, which are particularly relevant in the capacity of the health system to cope with the crisis. I would mention three, and has to do with the change of the administration. So number one, what was experienced in the 2018-2019 in the health system was basically a drain of talent from the health system, the public sector, uh, there were uh, important salary cuts and I would say a hostile environment to many of the uh, uh, professionals and trained doctors, and there has been a lot of people leaving 
uh, the health system, people that knew a lot about uh, how to train, people that have experienced the 2009 epidemic, and this is important in the capacity to respond to the crisis. The second scenario, which is also recent, is uh, an experience of uh, the past two or three years of budget cuts. So the health system, and in particular the public large institutions, the Ministry of Health, and EAMS have experienced lower budgets in the past three budget cycles. That leaves the health system uh, a bit weak in terms of its capacity. And finally, I would uh, mention that we have been caught in the middle of a health reform. Mexico has undergone something similar to the U.S., a repeal and replace of what we call Seguro Popular, which is uh, the system, the subsystem that caters to the very poor population, which are going to be the hardest hit. And it's important to mention that we were caught with a repeal, which had, was done in a legal change last year, but we haven't been able to do the replace. That means we have our doors caught, our, our fingers caught in the doors in the sense that the system is not responding or hasn't adjusted to the new legal changes. And there's a lot of indefinition of uh, who's in charge of the local systems at the state level, who, what is the capacity, where the funding is going to come from, who do uh, doctors, uh, directors, uh, state-level officials respond to, and that is going to create, um, that is going to uh, lower the capacity, the response capacity. Already we have been seeing a set of uh, uh, contradictory messages from uh, authorities, uh, like uh, it was uh, Jane was saying at the beginning, uh, sometimes uh, the president has addressed this as uh, minimized, uh, underplayed the crisis. In other cases, we have this very strict measures like last night, the closure of the federal government. So I think what the, this uncertainty in the messages are doing is creating anxiety. And this uh, anxiousness is also feeding into the uh, problem of the crisis. So this is a, a brief summary of uh, what I think is going on. I'll pass back to you, Duncan, and I'll be happy to um, elaborate further in the discussion. Thank you so much, Eduardo, um, and thank you for being uh, so punctual as well. Uh, turning the, uh, the line over to Luis de la Calle. Luis? Luis, are you there? We can't hear you at the moment. Operator, I wonder if you can check to make sure that he's not muted. Yes, I'll check. One moment, please. Thank you. Thank you. No, his line is open. Okay, we'll try to work on that. In the meantime, I'm going to ask uh, Jorge... Uh, to jump in here and to talk about uh, the impact of this uh, this crisis on public policy uh, and uh, public opinion. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I would like to put into context uh, public opinion about President López Obrador and about uh, the coronavirus crisis. Uh, the first thing uh, to notice is that uh, this health crisis finds the president on the defensive side. Uh, his approval levels uh, have been declining for about uh, one month, 
Uh, he used to be close to 70% uh, in February. And nowadays, the poll of polls uh, finds him uh, with a 58% approval level. This is his lowest approval level since he started his government. And just to put in, in, in a comparison with uh, the approval levels of Calderon when he had to deal with the H1N1 uh, health crisis, Calderon at that time had a 66% approval level, and uh, Lopez Obrador right now has a 58% approval level. Uh, in particular, the president uh, has been having very tough moments uh, facing the demands of the women's movement, uh, uh, trying to deal with the gen uh, violence against women in Mexican society. So this has been uh, a problem. Uh, sorry. Uh, I mean, the countryside. So... Uh, uh, then, secondly, uh, if we compare it, uh, compare it with uh, uh, 2009 uh, influenza crisis, uh, what the main difference we are noticing right now is that the president, instead of being a unifying figure, uh, somebody that uh, provides certainty to the country, has become a polarizing. Uh, his behavior has been reckless many times. Uh, he's uh, receiving a lot of criticism from the uh, Mexican public because he doesn't seem to be taking the coronavirus crisis seriously. And this has been reflected in some of the few polls that have been published that have uh, uh, Reforma just recently published a poll. Only 37% of the Mexican public approves the way that he's handling this health crisis, while 44% disapprove. Uh, we have also found that uh, different social groups have uh, been more... Uh, organized in dealing with the health crisis than the government itself. For instance, universities and the schools closed uh, earlier than the governor, uh, that the government decided to do so. Uh, the private sector did more or less the same. Uh, so what we are witnessing right now is that uh, uh, the reaction to the uh, to the health crisis from the part of the government uh, is showing signs of uh, uh, of not being very effective. Uh, in particular, I would emphasize, I, I will emphasize that uh, the lack of leadership, uh, this has translated that the public opinion's response to the way the government is handling this crisis has taken a partisan uh, bias, a partisan tone. Uh, so if you believe the president or if you approve of the way he's handling uh, his job, you will obey. And I think this is the key part. Will people obey the Mexican government directives regarding the health crisis? In 2009, 
uh, what we found is that one of the main factors driving uh, people obeying, uh, taking social distancing measures was if they approved the way the president was doing his job. And now we have a president that uh, is not as popular as it used to be on the one hand, but also that is taking uh, measures that some people think are not enough to deal with this crisis. And this is another important difference uh, with influenza crisis. In 2009, there was no social media that could inform the public very fast and easily about the health crisis. But also, uh, there was no information about what other countries were doing uh, to face this crisis because we were the first uh, country that had to deal with this uh, with influenza crisis. Nowadays, this has changed. And so what we are seeing is a society that is moving faster than the government. And so this has uh, important implications. Yes? Uh, as I was mentioning regarding that, uh, if people will obey uh, uh, the government uh, directives, I just want to mention the implications of this, uh, that no matter the outcome, what we are going to witness is a deterioration of the public image of President Lopez Obrador. In particular, loss of leadership. He will be perceived uh, more as a traditional man than a modern man, uh, not a man of science. Uh, this has been imposed. This has been uh, one of the main criticisms or the things that divide the public that many people do not see him as a modern man. And I think that this is going to be reinforced by the way that he's facing this crisis. And obviously, this will affect his approval levels on the one hand, but also will affect the positioning of his party uh, if we consider that next year we are going to have the midterm elections. So, uh, and this will take place in a, an economy will, that will be in a very bad shape uh, with exchange rates at a very high level. Um, the Mexican peso is losing value vis-a-vis -vis the dollar in a very fast way. So I think that one main consequence of this coronavirus crisis is that the Mexican political opposition will begin to organize. We had seen in the past months that there was not a, an opposition to the president, and I think this is going to change. And I could conclude uh, at this moment with, with my comments. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jorge. Um, I believe that we now have Luis de la Calle on the line. Apologies, Luis, for the problems in connecting you. Are you there? I, I'm here, Duncan. Good morning to everybody. Wonderful. Thank I, I you, Luis. Listening. Go ahead. You, you couldn't hear me, but I was listening to you. Uh, yeah, right. well, thank you. Uh, uh, I mean, this is probably the most significant crisis Mexico has faced uh, in the last decades. Deeper than the ones we had on the economic front in 82, 94, uh, uh, 87, 2008, 2009. 
And, and, and more difficult than the earthquake in 85, some of the hurricanes we've suffered. Um, so this has to be taken very seriously. I mean, the government is in a very difficult position, of course, uh, in the sense that um, people think that they have to choose between uh, economics and health. Uh, and I think that is, in the end, a false choice. If we choose economics and not health, we'll pay a dear price on the health side, and we'll pay a very dear price also on the economic side. Uh, I think that uh, it's not a matter of choosing between one or two, but actually having both of them as priorities. And, and in my way of thinking, the government lost precious weeks uh, by not educating people. I mean, uh, the argument that has been made is Mexico is different. We have crowded cities. We have uh, a lot of people in the informal sector. Uh, contagions uh, will be higher in uh, those circumstances. Well, if that is true, then much more efforts need to be made to educate people so that uh, social distance uh, can be uh, more effective and not less effective. And also, so we, we lost precious few weeks in terms of the education process. We also lost precious few weeks. I mean, Secretary, the Secretary of Health says that uh, they are working since early uh, mid-January on this. If that was true, Mexico would have a number of ventilators that we don't have, and we will have testing in Mexico, which we don't have either. So then maybe they were working on the statistical models or trying to convince the president, but not preparing Mexico for the crisis that is coming on us. Uh, the, the, my, in my view, I mean, what we have to do is uh, twofold. On, on, the, on the healthcare side, we need to prepare Mexicans for the uh, incoming crisis and uh, rely on households as the, uh, as the main line of defense. The vast majority of Mexicans will be treated, will be covered, and will be isolated in their own homes, and that is a place to, to treat them. Um, the hospital system will not withstand a, a large number of, uh, they will be all overwhelmed by a large number of patients coming to the health system. So the, we have to use the best institution we have in Mexico, which is uh, households and families. And, and then, uh, therefore, give them the tools through uh, the digital economy, through uh, distribution systems, uh, through uh, long-distance um, uh, diagnosis, through the uh, system that we created in Mexico City two years ago, which is uh, Medico en su casa, so that the doctors can go to your home, uh, uh, and other means so that... Um, uh, the, uh, I mean, most of the patients can be treated, and the most serious ones, of course, in hospitals uh, with respirators and, uh, and so forth. Uh, we also need to have a strategy of how to come back to work, uh, because, I mean, no economy will withstand uh, two or three months uh, with a closed economy. The, the, the collapse, uh, companies and uh, individuals and families will go from a liquidity crisis to a solvency crisis relatively fast, uh, and we'll go from a recession to a depression if we don't do something that is smart in terms of uh, supporting people, but also in terms of having light at the end of the tunnel. And light at the end of the tunnel, in my view, will come uh, on two fronts. One is uh, testing. We need to test people not only to know where the, uh, the epidemics stands, but also to know who has been healed uh, because the people that uh, have gone through the uh, coronavirus and are recovered, uh, they can go back to work with a small probability, very small probability that they will get sick again or that they will become a vector to uh, 
um, for contagious, contagious <coughs> of other people. Uh, so, so that's why we need massive testing. Secondly, uh, I think we need to, uh, once we have an infrastructure to deal with the people that um, are sick, at some point down the road, we must consider whether uh, sending people under 60 and uh, without chronic disease uh, back to work might make sense. Uh, so, so it's, I think, a combination of working on the healthcare side uh, and uh, having a light at the end of the tunnel on the economic side. But I mean, it's not a matter of choosing one over the other. We're just choosing the right balance in terms of uh, allocation of resources, first on the healthcare side and second on the economic recovery side. I'll stop right there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, um, we've heard from uh, the three experts. Uh, for those of you who would like to ask a question, um, please press star one on your, uh, on your phones. That will uh, get you into the queue. Um, I know that we've got a number of people who have already uh, dialed in, but I'd like to cycle back to, um, to Eduardo um, to, uh, to begin with. And just to ask you, Eduardo, um, you know, do you have any ideas or other projections um, for uh, how the, uh, the crisis is going to advance? in the, the near future. You've talked about the different profile that Mexico has in terms of its demography, um, its density, population, etc. But, I mean, are we expecting that this crisis will peak in the next uh, sort of uh, six to eight weeks, or do you think it will take longer than that? Thank you, Duncan. So, so it's a very important question. Uh, I think we have to be clear that we are entering very uncertain, uncharted territory here. Uh, we know there are some countries ahead of the curve, but uh, I don't think there's a clear message or a clear understanding when uh, this is going to peak. Uh, the authorities have mentioned April 1st, maybe a week ago. Then they went into June and July, and then the uh, most recent figure is that cases will peak in August. Let, let, let me make a case here, Duncan, because the, uh, what's going to happen depends a lot on the and the health policies implemented to what is called flattening the curve, which means just spreading the cases over time. And, and what I think is happening is that people are not understanding, following uh, Luis's example, the interplay between health policy and economic effects and the other way around. So, so flattening the curve makes sense because that would allow more people to be treated if you don't overload the system. Now, now, that is important when you have a health system which can cope. If you are going to use up most of the hospital beds very soon, the extra benefit of flattening the curve is not going to be very useful. So, so that's an important point to make. Now, flattening the curve will reduce GDP. And what people, I think, are not taking into consideration, especially policymakers, is that the effect on health and the economy is bi-directional, meaning that health policies will affect GDP, but it is also important to keep in mind that a fall in GDP will damage health. And it will damage health in two reasons. First, uh, you won't have the economic resources to respond in the health system. You won't have enough monies to pay for the staffing, for the ventilators, for the extra beds that need to be set in place. And second, uh, economic distress creates health impact. It increases suicides, it increases violence, it increases uh, heart attacks, strokes. 
So what we haven't dimensioned is what is going to happen with the effect of financial restraints on the health system. So I think we have to rethink a little bit of what it means to flatten the curve in Mexico, especially when we have a, a very weak economy and at the same time we also have a very weak health system. Back to you, Duncan. Thank you so much, Eduardo. Um, I know that um, we have uh, the Mexico Institute uh, uh, co-chair from Mexico, um, Luis Tellez, has been listening on the line. Luis, we haven't got you um, pressing star one to get into the queue to ask a question yet, so we can't open the line to you. Um, but as soon as you do, we will, we will have you on there. Um, but we do have a number of questions already in the line. Um, and so uh, we have Christopher Sherman, um, who is uh, a writer with the Associated Press. Um, can we open the line for Christopher? Yes, your line is open, sir. Thank you very much. Um, yes, uh, I, and Luis referred to this uh, as well as Eduardo, so the question could go to either one of them. But in terms of, of the Mexico's testing capacity, uh, a couple of weeks ago we heard the undersecretary say, I, I believe there were slightly more than 9,000 tests available uh, much has been made about early testing and the importance of it in, in confronting this epidemic in other countries. Um, I assume by now they've, they've increased that number uh, of available tests, but, but can you talk about what sort of role uh, the limited testing capacity uh, could play in Mexico's response? Eduardo, why don't you take that? Yeah, yeah, Oscar Penn. So, so the figures from last night is basically that we have had uh, 475 positive cases, 2,445 2, negative cases, and 1,656 suspicious cases. That means testing is very limited. What we don't know is what is behind the tip of the iceberg. And like Luis was saying, the only way to find out is if you do testing to the general population rather than not limiting testing only to the ones that show up sick at the hospital with uh, clear symptoms. Um, testing has been restricted only to the uh, network of national laboratories. There's a central one in Mexico City and there's one at each state. And some of the uh, laboratories in the public sector in the main research hospitals and institutions. Uh, it has been opened up to some private providers, maybe five or six major hospitals, and it has been done mostly at hospital level. That means it takes long and it's part of the uh, framework of the big hospitals. The fast testing that you have seen in other countries within two hours, one hour now available is not that generally used. And unless generalized testing is uh, allowed in the system, it's going to be very difficult to really dimension the magnitude of the problem and how far down the curve you have managed to, uh, to push through. I think uh, it will be open up. There's recent signals. There's talk that COFEPRIS, our FDA-type institution, will liberalize the import of testing without uh, the usually required uh, registry and possibilities that uh, most of the testing can be done outside of a uh, institutional hospital settings. 
Wonderful. Was there anything that you wanted to add uh, there, uh, Luis? No, I agree with what Juan was saying. I mean, uh, Mexico has significant capabilities for testing. We have the testing equipment. I mean, uh, the private sector has 14,000 uh, laboratories uh, throughout Mexico uh, where they do regular testing on many um, health issues. Uh, they could be used um, for uh, testing. We have a testing today that is reactive. As Eduardo was saying, it's only done to people that come sick to the hospital instead of uh, uh, proactive instead of to, to increase the size of the uh, sample. And testing is important in terms of the defensive strategy as to, to know where the, um, the virus is expanding, where we need to do more isolation, as the Koreans have done. That's important, very important. But it's also very important to, to have testing so that uh, we know who has had it and, uh, and, and how many of those people uh, can eventually go back to work. I, I think it's also for economic reasons that testing is important. Great, thank you. I believe that we do now have um, Luis Tellez on the line. If we can open up that, uh, uh, that line for Luis to ask a question. Uh, yes. Uh, well, first of all, I think uh, what Eduardo Luis and Jorge said is uh, very, very relevant. And uh, I have some comments, uh, two comments on, on uh, the three of them touched on uh, this point. The first one is uh, that... Uh, and Jorge was very uh, um, clear on this, is that uh, society, uh, uh, let's say the educational sector, n not only the private schools, but also uh, public institutions like UNAM and uh, the Politecnico Nacional have been ahead of the government in taking decisions. Uh, private firms uh, have also done that. And uh, I think uh, this leads uh, to, a, uh, to an issue that Luisa Lacalle touched, which I think is very delicate, which is when do you call uh, uh, the, uh, your students or your workers back if you don't have a leadership uh, from the federal government? And on top of that, you have uh, local governments uh, giving guidelines. Uh, so the lack of leadership uh, uh, will be... Uh, surely a, a, a major cost uh, to the economy at this point, uh, given that uh, society and the, the different state governments have taken uh, a, um, a role, a, a, a role in, in, in this, uh, a very active role in this. And uh, so that's very worrisome. Uh, yeah, the second thing is... Uh, I want to uh, compare uh, what happened in 1994 with uh, the current crisis. I think 1994 uh, was uh, a, a, a crisis of a magnitude similar to, well, not similar, as I agree fully with Luis, uh, not as great, but uh, we could have lost uh, the economy. Uh, and uh, what happened in 1994 is that uh, we, uh, and I was uh, involved in the uh, front line of the battle, is that uh, we almost lost uh, the payment system. That is not the case in, in this, uh, in, in this uh, episode, in, in this crisis, because uh, most of the banks, and especially the, back, the big banks, uh, have the backstops of uh, the uh, European Central Bank in the case of 
Santander, BBUEA, which is the largest bank, and uh, HSBC, well, HSBC of the Bank of England, and, uh, of course, uh, Banamex and Citibank, and, and, and they have the backstop, it has a backstop of the Fed. But the most worrisome part, and I would ask Luis to, to uh, elaborate on this, uh, what, what his opinion is, is that uh, once we uh, once we have uh, once the crisis is over and uh, well not over but we have the uh, we have crossed uh, uh, the uh, difficult line of going back uh, restarting economic activity if the government uh, doesn't pour in uh, a massive amount of money. Uh, there will be firms uh, which will not be uh, there anymore. Uh, and uh, this disruption in economic activity is something that uh, neither Mexico uh, nor other countries have seen uh, since the Second World War. And uh, the problem I see in the, the big challenge uh, for uh, for all of us is uh, to convince the Mexican government that uh, they have to have a facility uh, to uh, provide liquidity uh, to firms, uh, and uh, the Bank of Mexico should also uh, have a, a facility to uh, make uh, fin- the, fin- the financing and the uh, servicing of credit easier and provide resources to that a special window like uh, the tarp was opened in in, in 208 and uh, but the problem is uh, that the government uh, stated yesterday that they only will help medium and mid-size, medium and small uh, enterprises with 25,000 uh, pesos uh, of credit uh, for the next three months so um, my my uh, concern, and uh, I would like to see if Luis has the same, is that uh, if the government doesn't step in with a massive program, and uh, we can discuss with, uh, how the program will be funded and what the government has to do in order to make the program fundable, because it, even if we have a debt-to-GDP ratio which is small, uh, nobody will fund Mexico if uh, some of the projects that Mexico is undertaking, which are highly value destruction, destructive, are not uh, stopped. Uh, but if a massive uh, injection of resources to the Mexican uh, large corporations and uh, mid, mid-large corporations is not done, we will have we will enter a period of depression with uh, very high unemployment and uh, we will destroy uh, the uh, productive capacity of the economy or the lack of action on the side of the government will destroy the uh, productive capacity of the economy uh, for a very long time. So uh, the economic uh, the, the economic consequences uh, of the pandemic uh, are uh, could be very dear, uh, very uh, dear, very... Uh, uh, very expensive and uh, get uh, 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 really develop a lot of suffering for Mexicans. And this is something the U.S. government should uh, also think about, uh, given uh, the migration flows that uh, will 
uh, result out of this. And uh, as chairman of the Mexican Institute, I thank uh, Eduardo Luis and Jorge for participating. Obviously, uh, you, uh, Duncan, for organizing, and Jane for being in the in the court. Thank you, Luis. Um, Luis Alacay, would you like to respond to uh, to Luis's comments? Um, sure. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Um, well, I mean, the, the economic challenge that we face uh, is uh, very complex and very difficult for because the, the the Mexican economy has been subjected to three shocks at the same time. We have a supply shock in terms of um, uh, value chains being uh, uh, interrupted or destroyed, closing facilities, and that is, of course, diminishes the ability to supply things to the market. Then we have a demand shock. The demand shock because there is a consumption is collapsing in Mexico and the U.S. Uh, and also investment is going to be collapsing. I mean, it's, we already had negative numbers of investment in 2019, and in 2020 firms will not invest. So, um, and on top of that, you have a significant increase in volatility and uncertainty. Uh, I mean, the reason why the Mexican peso has suffered more than other currencies and the Mexican stock market has fallen more than other uh, emerging markets is that uh, uh, we had significant carry trade. Uh, uh, investors were borrowing in dollars or euros or yens at zero or negative rates and then placing those monies into peso denominated bonds, mostly most of them uh, government securities, at 8%. Uh, for a long time. There's $120 billion worth of carry trade uh, in the financial markets before the crisis began. The problem is that when you, you increase volatility, the Mexico country risk goes up. Uh, people begin to unwind those positions, and the unwinding of those positions uh, batters the peso uh, and Mexican markets very significantly. So, uh, and the problem is that these three forces, the supply shock, the demand shock, and the uncertainty shock, uh, feed into each other and make the uh, uh, slowdown a recession and potentially, as Luis was saying, a depression. Uh, the challenge for the firms is first, uh, firms and households, is first to survive the, uh, the, uh, the slowdown in the short term. Uh, and, 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 and for that, we need to prevent uh, the liquidity crisis they face because they will have very few, very little income into a solvency crisis. I mean, these companies and families and workers were solvent before the, um, the, the uh, outbreak, and, and now they might become insolvent if they have to continue paying while they have no income. So for, to prevent that, in the short term, we need an agreement uh, among Mexicans, uh, private sector uh, agents, and also with the government, that if we put the economy on, in, in, in pause, then we need to put the uh, uh, due payments also in pause. You cannot ask individuals to to pay taxes or to pay mortgages or rents or suppliers or, or whatever in full if they have no income, because then they will they'll become bankrupt. If they become bankrupt, then there will be a lot of uh, unemployment and a lot of uh, hardship. So, 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 uh, so an, an, an agreement among private parties might be more important to the solution of this than uh, the uh, added liquidity coming from the uh, banking system and the central bank because the, uh, the, the amounts that are needed to uh, be a little forgiven in terms of uh, payments are massive and uh, well beyond the reach of the financial system. We also need, of course, the government to 
uh, scale up uh, its, uh, some of its welfare programs. It has to be targeted because there is not, not enough money for everybody. Uh, so particularly targeted to the people that will be losing their jobs or losing their income streams in the formal sector and, the, and the, in the informal sector. I mean, this idea that only the people in the informal sector will suffer is not true. People in the formal sector might suffer and might suffer even more because they, they, they tend to be less flexible and they tend not to receive uh, welfare transfers from the government. Uh, and, and people in the informal sector tend to uh, receive welfare transfers uh, more. So it's for the government a bit easier to send monies to the informal sector than to the uh, uh, formal sector. Santiago Levin had made, made a proposal yesterday in, in Nexus. I encourage you to read it because it's very comprehensive and has very good ideas as to who, how these transfers uh, should work and, and, and how it's feasible to do it in the short term. Now, long term, as Luis was saying, the question is how do we make sure that uh, the, uh, the economy recovers uh, when the, this, is, this thing is over? Well, uh, let me tell you first the bad news. It will take time. I mean, this idea that this is a V-shaped recession is um, not true. This is going to be a U recession or a prolonged U recession. Uh, once you have closed uh, uh, things down, facilities, uh, supply chains, it takes a long, a long time to, uh, to recover the strength of the consumption, investment, and, the, and keep the machinery going. Uh, so the, an effort will be, need to be, to be made to make Mexico hugely competitive. And in the lesson we derive from previous crises is that we tend to do well when we enter the crisis in a solid position. In this case, Mexico's position is uh, not very solid, but I mean, with some strengths, but not very solid because we were not growing and we were not investing in 2019. Uh, but I mean, the key, the key to the solution is to emphasize in the short term your long-term, the long-term vision of the country, because that is what's going to be make, make Mexico attractive for, for investment. And, and the, the argument we could, could have made before the uh, coronavirus still stands, uh, this episode and the difficulties in uh, China-U.S. trade are a tremendous potential uh, for Mexico, and that potential can be realized if we do, if we do things right. Thank you, Luis. Uh, Jane Harmon, uh, CEO, President of the Wilson Center, would like to ask a question. Uh, thank you, Duncan, and thank you to all the brilliant members of the Mexico Institute Board and those who have great affection for the Mexico Institute. I thought this conversation was uh, so informative. Uh, two things. Number one, um, nobody has mentioned, or if you have, I haven't heard it, um, the international levers that we have, uh, some on the health side and some on the economic side. I haven't heard three letters IMF come up. I haven't heard G20, which I gather uh, from uh, something President Trump said yesterday is meeting uh, virtually, I think, today, uh, and so forth. That's on the economic side. On the health side, I haven't heard WHO. It just seems to me that so much more could be done. Um, each leader is different, and I, uh, you know, the conversation about AMLO was not that encouraging about his leadership on this issue. Uh, and you might say that about our president too. So much more could be done to uh, put the whole world together since this is a pandemic. That's my one comment. And the second, uh, I guess, uh, and I wonder what you think of that. And second question is. Uh, why shouldn't or isn't uh, China exploiting this more? I mean, if I were Xi Jinping, I would call up uh, Huawei and I would say, I want you to go to total production of uh, respirators, 
with the Huawei decal on them, you know, sticker, and I want you to give them away to the entire world. And I think that would be an, an amazing uh, uh, foreign policy move by China. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Um, and just a little plug for the publication that came out yesterday. That actually talks extensively about the North American plan for animal and uh, pandemic influenza, uh, which is an arrangement between the three North American countries, which I understand is being used at this point in time, uh, mostly at the, at the current time to, uh, uh, to facilitate communication between health uh, authorities in all three countries. Um, but it has been important so far in coordinating the Mexican and U.S. positions. But let me turn, first of all, to um, Eduardo to ask him about uh, sort of World Health Organization or PAHO, um, their role in this. Um, if you could make your response quite quick, Eduardo, and then um, Luis on the IMF, World Bank, and other uh, and G7. Thank you, Duncan. I'll, I'll be quick. Um, there's a lot of collaboration with WHO and with the uh, regional agency, which is PAHO. Uh, most of it is the exchange of information. There's no direct, direct uh, actual, let's say, involvement at the country level. That is up to the uh, authorities, the ministries of health, in health institutions. What I think it's most important nowadays is both the exchange of uh, learning experiences, uh, what works, what doesn't work, especially with the containment, the flattening of the curve activities. And second, everything that is being done on the treatment and on the prevention side. There's uh, huge efforts in trying to bring to market uh, a vaccine and also to understand which of the drugs which are already available for other diseases could actually help for uh, treatment of COVID-19. So, yes, there is collaboration, but I think most of the responsibility and the capacity to influence is going to be at the local level. Thank you, Eduardo. Luis, on international uh, economic institutions. Well, I mean, I think they play an important role, of course. Um, and, and, and the most important role I think they should play is on the recovery efforts. I mean, the World Bank was founded as the uh, the, uh, the, the, the Bank for, in, for International uh, Recovery, I think was the, the, the first name uh, for the reconstruction. Uh, and, and, and I think that that should be their role, provide the long-term funding so that uh, we can rebuild uh, what's uh, destroyed by the, uh, by the crisis. So it's, it is very important. Now let me say something on what Jane said in terms of uh, China uh, providing uh, uh, equipment. Uh, I mean, Mexico has significant capacity to do that as well. Uh, Mexico is an exporter, uh, you'll be surprised, but Mexico exports mostly to the U.S., ventilators. Um, and and we, we can ramp up that production. I mean, we have the same facilities that China has, uh, Foxconn, Flextronics, and others in Mexico, that if we give them the equipment, uh, they can produce much more. Um, uh, uh, increase ramp up production. It's, it's feasible, and I think that's the, the right moment to do a contribution to that so that uh, we are seen as um, uh, we become part of the solution for Mexico, of course, uh, first, uh, but we produce enough also to other countries. So it's, it's, it's very important that we join forces in, in making this, uh, this possible. And, and we can also do things like uh, not only uh, high-end respirators, but I mean for uh, uh, cases that are a bit less complex, uh, even providing just oxygen will help some of the people that uh, are, are, are in pain. So uh, <laughs> we need to marshal our significant industrial capacity uh, 
Uh, Mexico has become in the last 20 years one of the main suppliers of medical devices to North America. And so with the capacity exists, and we should exploit it. And as you know, when you have a pandemic or the sanitary emergency, patents do not apply. So uh, firms are uh, forced to share their knowledge as to how those uh, instruments uh, should be produced. And, and I think the bureaucracy should uh, I mean, make clear that, uh, as Eduardo implied with the uh, COVID decision, that they can proceed without uh, too much paperwork. That's fascinating, Luis. Thank you so much. Um, over to um, Carrie Khan from NPR. Carrie just produced a very interesting uh, short piece for NPR on, on the challenges of hand washing in Mexico. Carrie. Uh, thanks, Duncan. Um, I'll be quick. I just was echoing what Chris was asking about testing, and this is a question for Eduardo. Thanks so much. Um, just, I have a couple quick questions. They say they've done 3,785 tests in the country. What do you think about this number? And they're also including in that number suspected cases, like they give out every night. So isn't that double testing so the actual number is much lower? And then if you could all, what they're relying on instead of actual testing is statistical modeling. And from your experience, what do you think of this approach to take statistical modeling over testing? Thank you so much. Eduardo. So, yes, testing is an issue, and uh, I think it was mentioned. There's consensus, I would say, that testing has not been deployed as it should be, especially if you look at the uh, success examples, basically uh, – uh, Asian countries, uh, Singapore, Korea, Japan, where extensive testing was done. So it has been limited. I think uh, it is because of a control issue. Uh, I think that unless we open up to general population testing, which uh, actually feeds into the model, we would not be able to understand the real breadth of the uh, of the epidemic. So. Uh, Cases, I think, uh, are very limited and will remain limited unless there is an openness of allowing uh, the import of uh, kits, the uh, self-standing uh, fast tests that are available in other countries. And uh, epidemic modeling, I think, is very useful. It's been done elsewhere. I think it complements rather than substitutes for testing. Actually, testing can feed into the model and you can get the better predictions out of that. So. That said, can, can, uh, Duncan, can I say something that has been, uh, it's, it's unrelated, but I think it's a very important thing about the uh, pace of the recovery and the potential in Mexico. And I'll just put it on the table. And it has to do with the uh, deep distrust that uh, the Mexican leadership, in particular AMLO, has on rescue programs. I think that is going to feed into the capacity of Mexico to actually put together a very structural bailout because most of it will not be done as it has been done in other countries where you have a major commitment on the institutions and uh, as it has been seen in other times in Mexico. Back to you, Duncan. Thank you, Eduardo. Um, we're now going to Cecilia de la Macora. Thank you, Duncan, and thank you, everyone. I, I, Eduardo's comment was a perfect segue to my, to my question, which has to do with this crisis of leadership. Uh, on the one hand, I'm seeing a crisis of leadership on the, from the opposition really not taking uh, advantage of this time to, to organize themselves uh, as an alternative to AMLO. On the second, 
I, I would like to ask you about the willingness of the government to test. It's, rather than the capacity, what is the willingness to really show the appropriate numbers or the right numbers? Uh, and this also has to do with these uh, fiscal and monetary policies. Uh, how do we avoid AMLO disregarding this expansionary fiscal and monetary policies that the country needs today as the quote-unquote neoliberal recipe uh, uh, that the country actually needs? So uh, just adding to, to Luis's three external, I mean, or three shocks, I would add a fourth one, which is the, the fact that all the decisions are centralized today in the president and what is the likelihood of, of his team or others of convincing him of the right recipes to affront this crisis. Uh, thank you. Why don't we turn to Jorge? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Duncan. I think that uh, regarding the crisis of leadership, one thing that we are right now uh, witnessing is the rise of check and balances to presidential power. For some, this might be a positive consequence uh, of this crisis because uh, in the past we had, or in the previous months, we have seen a high a highly unusual concentration of power in the hands of López Obrador. And in this regard, I think that local governments have beginning to take the lead. Uh, in particular, in the state of Jalisco, the governor, which is a member of the opposition party, Movimiento Ciudadano, he's been taking the lead in, in testing, in uh, in putting directives that are far ahead of what the federal government is proposing. And even within the Lopez Obrador's party, Morena, Claudia Sheinbaum has been ahead of her, and it's now public that she wanted, for instance, to cancel this massive music concert that took place in Mexico City about uh, 10 days ago, and Lopez Obrador uh, ordered her to to, to uh, not to cancel it. So I think that local governments right now are beginning to take the lead. And I think this is uh, also important because uh, for the public data that we have seen and, and what we have seen in other countries, what we have is our regional clusters of the, uh, of the of coronavirus. In particular, the the Mexican data show that uh, Nuevo León, Jalisco, and Mexico City are the main areas or the main regions that have been affected. And we have seen in those cases that the local governments are, uh, are, are, are right now the main organizers of the public strategy to combat uh, the coronavirus. Thank you, Jorge. Um, I believe that we have uh, Robbie Whelan on the line. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Thanks so much for organizing the call, uh, Duncan, and, and to the Wilson Center. Um, I had a question about um, about sort of the international financial side of this. There's been some really interesting comments from Luis Tellez and Luis de la Calle um, with respect to this theme, but but. I wonder, and I wanted to put this question to your to your participants, um, whether anyone thinks that that people are really um, 
talking realistically about sort of the size and intensity of the crisis facing Latin American emerging market economies. And, and what I mean by that is that, um, you know, we've got, we've got a huge amount of support, something like 10% of, of GDP in the U.S. being spent to rescue the U.S. economy, huge outflows going to, to, to buy treasuries, U.S. treasuries and, and, and uh, developed economy bonds from, in Europe, and whereas in, in, in Latin America, we, we don't have nearly the same set of tools to work with, either fiscally or financially. And I, and I wanted to sort of test the water, you know, get, take the temperature of the, of the room here, so to speak, in terms of how, how intense do you think this crisis is? Given, I mean, add to that, you've got this cocktail of um, the perfect storm of, of, a, of a terrible economy in Mexico, already in recession almost certain to go into depression. We've got a looming ratings downgrade for the sovereign and for, for Pemex bonds. What does this all add up to in terms of the intensity of the crisis if, in fact, um, uh, Lopez Obrador does not step in with some sort of uh, fiscal and financial res uh, rescue package for small and medium enterprises, and if, in fact, the IMF or, or other international bodies don't step in with a massive rescue passage for Latin American Latin American companies. What, what is, the, is the scale of the economic damage that we're looking at? And has anyone really captured that yet, as far as you guys know? Uh, Luis. Well, I mean, it's difficult to say. In, in, in our office, we made an estimate, and we, we believe that there's a two-thirds, uh, so 66% probability, the Mexican economy will fall more than 5% in 2020. Uh, and uh, so that is overall GDP numbers, and that, that assumes that uh, we'll recover from the epidemics uh, in, in the third quarter. Um, so that the sanitary issue is solved by then. If, if it's not, then it'll be uh, probably bigger and, of course, longer. Uh, in terms of employment, uh, that would imply for Mexico 1.7 million uh, employees being, uh, employees, employment being lost, informal and formal. Uh, and of which 700,000 in the formal sector. So it, this is a massive um, drop uh, compared to 2009. In 2009, we lost 1.3 million and uh, 450,000 uh, in the formal sector. So, uh, I mean, and this is assuming that uh, we don't have a uh, situation like Mexico was, uh, like Italy, in terms of the um, severity of infection. So it is, it is, it is it's a very serious concern. Uh, and uh, and um, there is some vulnerabilities in, on the Mexican uh, economy, but also some strengths, and we should we should play on them. But I mean, it's a, it's a difficult situation, uh, uh, and the prognosis is not very good. It, 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 almost regardless of what the government does, I mean, that we have the fact that the U.S. is having a massive package. Uh, to the extent that that package is successful, it will of course help Mexico. Because, I mean, we, the Mexican economy and the U.S. economy uh, tend to move together. But, I mean, the fact that the U.S. is using such a big guns, you, you probably uh, also should be read as an indicator of the uh, serious uh, state in which the economies are. Thank you so much, Luis. Um, we, as you have uh, noticed, we are going beyond our, uh, our time. We're actually going to extend until around 11.20. Um, so we've got time to take a couple more questions. Andrew Rudman. Um, my co-author on the recent paper. Are you still on the line? Yes, I'm here. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, everybody. Thanks. This has been a, a great discussion. Um, I'm, I'm always struck by how 
Mexico seems to follow, uh, seems to be following the U.S. experience on, on COVID-19 uh, for better or for worse, um, starting at the at the top, at the level of the president. But I wondered if, if you could all, or, or maybe Luis first, could comment on what the private sector is doing to try to respond to the crisis in, in the U.S. You've seen companies uh, committing to pay their employees when they can't open. You've seen donations uh, of various types. So I was just curious what the Mexican private sector is doing. Thanks so much, Luis. Yeah, well, I'll not speak on behalf of the private sector, of course, but I mean, what, I, we, what we have seen is like um, Aeromexico, and this is public, has made a significant effort. We have, um, they, because they, they recall the experience in 2009. 2009, if you recall, Aeromexico shrank the number of flights uh, they used. Uh, they had an agreement with the unions to delay payments and shorten the um, uh, payments to the uh, workers, uh, and they survived. Mexicana did the reverse. They increased the flights, uh, and uh, they invested, and, they, of course, they went bankrupt. So Aeromexico has done a significant effort. They have um, uh, grounded planes. They have negotiated with the unions, negotiated with uh, suppliers, uh, and uh, they have a better chance of surviving. So there is some effort on that front that is happening. Some firms have made a commitment not to lay off people to the extent possible, uh, and uh, therefore to uh, also negotiate better conditions in terms of uh, holidays and uh, uh, bonuses and things so that there is no uh, uh, overcharge to the uh, liquidity of the firms. And the private sector has also been making efforts uh, with the government to make sure, one, that uh, we have a supply chain uh, going for uh, all the medical equipment and also the um, food. Uh, it's very important that uh, people do panic shopping. And, uh, the only way to prevent panic shopping is to replace and replenish the um, shelves as fast as you can so that uh, there is no fear that there will be shortages in terms of uh, food and that the private sector is working with the government on that. And also there is some uh, efforts to uh, by some private sector individuals in terms of donations, uh, acquisition of equipment, and things of that sort. But I mean, much more will have to be done. Uh, I mean, if, uh, my hope is that um, if we recall the episodes in the past, if we're, which we had the hurricanes on the, or uh, earthquakes or things of that sort, Mexicans really did really uh, rally behind the effort and everybody participated, households and, and firms. So, uh, I mean, once people realize the extent of the uh, and the difficulties that we encounter, uh, I think more people will jump on board and, and try to help. Thank you, Luis. I understand that Luis Tejas would also like to uh, say something about this particular conversation. Luis Tejas. Thank you, Duncan. Uh, regarding uh, Jane Herman's uh, question on the efforts, uh, on the international efforts, the Mexican government has been supported by the Fed recently uh, by a swap line of $60 billion, and it has a uh, line with the uh, IMF of $70 billion. So uh, there has been support uh, in, in terms, uh, on financial terms, uh, by the international community. Uh, however, the Mexican government has uh, not taken advantage and, and has not pulled in the, uh, the lines. Uh, that's one point. And uh, the, the second one is uh, a coordination problem uh, that has been mentioned. Uh, when do we start activities again? And that's 
uh, a problem of leadership. And uh, in, in other words, uh, it's clear uh, that, let's say, in Germany, uh, when uh, Chancellor Mer Merkel appears again on TV and says uh, the, uh, the pandemic has been controlled and uh, we can go back to uh, our factories to, to produce Volkswagens, uh, that will happen. In Mexico, there is a total confusion. What will the governor of Jalisco say? And then uh, what will the federal government say on the same, uh, on the same line? So uh, there has to be coordination, and the problem is the lack of leadership uh, that uh, has taken place uh, at, uh, at the federal government and has been substituted by the local governments. And so I'm, I'm uh, as an economist, I'm very worried uh, that this lack of coordination uh, could lead to a, a, pro a, to a very prolonged uh, um, recession, and uh, this will feed in, uh, and uh, as we talk, into uh, a depression is the credit lines uh, that we talked about and uh, uh, the support in, in the U.S. Uh, the support package includes uh, equity buyouts and equity injections into the firms, and, and we don't have anything like that in Mexico, and we could have it because we could raise the resources. Simply the, the 60 plus 70 mil billion uh, of the IMF and uh, the um, the Federal Reserve. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you so much. Um, we've got time for one last question. So, if Roberto Ransom is still with us from uh, the Hunt Institute at UTEP, yes, uh, I'm here. Um, my question is uh, circling back to the lack of leadership by the federal government. Uh, what can local and state governments do to, to take care of massive appearance of, of sick, sick patients? Uh, I'm uh, personally, my hometown is uh, from Durango, Mexico, and, uh, you know, uh, knowing a little bit of the infrastructure uh, back in the, the hometown, I, I know that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the hospitals are very reduced as far as beds. So is there anything uh, else that could be done? And this question mainly for Eduardo Gonzalez-Pierre. Thank you, Eduardo. So with respect to local capacity to respond, I would say most of the beds and uh, – I'm talking about the medical capacity to respond rather than the capacity of the states to contain. Uh, IMSS and EAST are federal agencies. They have the most beds for this case. The private sector is very weak at the state level, and what has not been resolved is uh, if you allow for private beds to be used for the contingency, what are the financial arrangements, reimbursement arrangements behind that? Uh, the Ministries of Health is a very important network of <coughs> hospitals, and they could be respond, but uh, as I said at the beginning, what is happening nowadays is that the Seguro Popular, which was a decentralized way of reimbursing the states for uh, medical care, has been replaced with Insabi, which is a centralized uh, alternative, which hasn't put the rules together in terms of how states should behave with respect to the response and the capacity to uh, deliver services. So I think the states are caught in the middle of uh, a lot of uncertainty on the, on the uh, functioning of their um, hospital networks. And uh, some states have decided to uh, hold out 
from the Insabi network. Others have decided to devolve to the center, the hospital and uh, health services network. And I think uh, a lot of it will be resolved until the federal government puts the rules together in terms of uh, how the center will react with the state levels for the response. In any case, uh, the bed capacity at the state level is low. And uh, if the projections of the number of infected people reaches, let's say, 50%, then the same uh, number of uh, that population reaches the hospitals and eventually ICU care, then uh, the system will be overloaded very fast. Thank you, Eduardo. It turns out that we do actually have time for one last question from Wendy Fry. Wendy is still on the line. Hi, yes, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'm just, I, I was really um, interested in the numbers for of job loss for the economy that you guys are mentioning um, as it relates to the border region. So in Baja California, Tijuana, San Diego, those economies are so interconnected and tied. And I was wondering if there's been any estimates yet um, on, on what it could do to the region as a border region. Uh, Louis, Louis, have you seen anything on that? Well, I mean, not not yet. I mean, the the, um, the sectors that will, will the, the sectors that will suffer the most uh, will be, of course, um, um, uh, the retail that is not linked to um, groceries, uh, the hotels. So you should expect the large drops in, uh, in the state of Quintana Roo, for Cancun, and in Baja Sur, uh, in the, the Cabos region, or things of that sort. Uh, manufacturing, which is the, um, I mean, basically the, the Tijuana region is manufacturing. Uh, well, that, that will depend on how the U.S. economy does. So, uh, but I mean, if we look at what happened in, in 2009, uh, we saw employment dropping, dropping sharply in Juarez and Tijuana. And one of the reasons why violence went up uh, in, in those years was precisely because of the uh, difficulty in terms of the uh, economic situation in, in, in those two cities. So, uh, yes, it's a concern, but I mean, I think it's a little premature to have a calculation on state-by-state uh, state, uh, unemployment numbers. Thank you, Thank you. Wendy. Um, we will be producing a, um, a, a short document in the next week or so on the border closing and what impact that's having and how it's being handled. So please look out for that. Um, obviously, this is an evolving issue. Uh, we expect that we will host another discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic in Mexico at a later date. I'd like to thank our panelists, Eduardo, Jorge, Luis, for a lively and highly informative discussion. Thanks so much to Luis Tejas, who we heard from a couple of times, uh, and to Ambassador Tony Wayne, our Mexico Institute co-chairs. Thanks to Jane Harmon for, uh, um, for, for being with us on the call as well. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please check in with the Mexico Institute website for more information as we follow the crisis. Have a good day and stay healthy, everybody. That concludes today's conference. You may disconnect at this time. Thank you. Thank you. Do we still have our speakers on the uh, on the line?